Each week you've had some kind of little toy. I'll explain more to you what that's about next week. But today, you've got this really interesting thing, a miracle eraser cut into six parts, right? So if nothing else comes from this, just know the church today gave you something to help you clean up the mess, okay? If nothing else comes from it, by all means, use it. It might be a little rough for makeup, so I just save it for pots and pans or whatever, but, but there's that. But during the service today, you also were given a Sharpie. Now, let me be clear about this, because I don't want you to make the mistake I have frequently made, which is to stick a Sharpie in my pocket, forget it's there, and do the laundry. That's a bad day. All right, so uh, this has a purpose today, and these are actually bricks. At least that's what they're supposed to be. And as you go through the service today, you're going to see why that's an important idea. If you hear something today that is something that you need to build more of into your life, I want you to write that on one of the bricks. And what the idea is that by the time the sermon's over, maybe you'll have five, you may not have all of them, but five or six of these done, and then take it home and for at least a couple of days, stick it someplace where you're going to build your little wall of something you want to build into your life. So as an example, you might put prayer on here. I want to put more prayer in my life. I want to build that in an intentional way. Or more study. I want to put more study in my life. Or maybe more encouragement. I want to be more encouraging. Or more kindness. Or more service. You get the idea? So you're going to hear a lot of things as we go through the service. And just jot something down. One lady left last week. And she said, man, that was great. I have the whole sermon there in, in my sermon notes in six words. I thought, that's pretty good. I, I gave about 10000 for the service. And you got it in six. You should preach next week. But anyway, that is an aside. So we're in this series, and, and I want to talk, we've talked already in the beginning about how important it was the first week to acknowledge that the world's a mess, and that we are part of that, that we help make the mess. That was a part of the first week's sermon. Then last week we talked about the fact that sometimes the mess wasn't caused by us. We inherit the mess, and we have to deal with the mess, but we didn't cause that to happen. Well, today I want to start this part of the series where we talk about how do we rebuild Okay, Marty, you've told us things can be messy, and, and you told us God wants to help us, but what are the practical steps for rebuilding our lives or rebuilding our broken world? How do we put it back together? Well, there's a, a story in the Bible, an entire book of the Bible, that really is about this concept of rebuilding. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Nehemiah before, but it's an important story. We're going to listen to most of that story today and talk about it, but it's an important story. Now, last week in the story of Ruth, we looked at 3,500 years ago. This week, we're going back about 2,500 years, so 1,000 years more into the future. And this is a story about a time where the nation of Israel has come and it's risen, it's divided into two kingdoms, uh, and it's fallen into captivity and ruin. And man, you talk about the walls having been knocked down. Jerusalem has been decimated. The people have been carried off to Babylon, where they're slaves, where they're part of a different culture there. And uh, the only people who are left behind in Jerusalem when they left were people who were of no use to the Babylonians as slaves, or people who they thought would be a burden. So who did they leave behind? They left behind people who were sick and diseased. They didn't take them with them. They left behind, this isn't very nice, people who were old to fend for themselves in a broken down land. They left them behind anyone that had any kind of cognitive challenges or any physical defects that made them a handicap in some way, as they would have seen it. 
That's who they left behind. Anyone they saw as having value as a servant or as a slave or as a field worker, well, that's who they took with them. So what's sad about that is the people who were most at risk, that's who the Babylonians left behind in Jerusalem. And as for Jerusalem, well, they had burned down all the gates knocked down almost all of the walls, put most of the buildings to rubble, so the people that were left behind had no shelter, no protection, and they were surrounded by enemies who took advantage of them over and over and over again. And that's not a very pretty picture. You talk about what it's like when the world is a mess. (laughs) That world was a mess. God's chosen people in his chosen city of Jerusalem, it lies in ruins. The walls have been knocked down. So how do we fix the mess of all of that? Well, God picks this unlikely person, Nehemiah, to be the one who puts the pieces back together. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to that story and let's start with the story of Nehemiah, but let's also look at this as a, as a glimpse into how we might go about rebuilding things when the walls have been knocked down, when, when we have a mess that seems to have left us devastated, right? The scorched earth has happened. How do we go forward from there? Nehemiah gives us an idea. And you know where Nehemiah's story starts in chapter one? It actually starts with caring. Nehemiah cares. Now, I realize sometimes life beats us down so much that we say, I'm numb. I'm just numb. I don't care anymore. I don't care. I'm just numb. I don't care about things. And when we get to that place, it's really hard for us to move forward. But here's something about Nehemiah, right? He sees that things are a wreck, but he cares about that. He cares enough to say, I don't want things to stay the way they are. And one of the big things that has to happen if we're going to move past a mess, past a a, a challenge past the point where things have collapsed around us, we have to care again. Now, why do we not want to care? Because caring has risk. If I care, it might hurt me more than it's messed up and broken. If I care, I might have more pain because maybe it takes a while to fix this thing and I just get hurt over and over again. So caring has risks associated with it. You're going to see in this story that caring has risks for Nehemiah. Listen to what happens in the story. It says, the God's word came to Nehemiah. These are the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It says in verse, uh, verse 2, uh, Nehemiah says, Hanani, one of my brothers, came to me from Judah with some other men. So what this means is that his brother Hanani had been on a trip probably for the king, and as he had gone probably down to Egypt and had been coming back through Judah, he saw Jerusalem. He saw the people there. He saw how broken down it all was. And so as he comes back to Babylon, uh, back to where, he's, where they're stationed at right now, when he gets back there, it says, he came back, I questioned him about the Jewish remnant. Now understand this, Nehemiah's never been there. The events that happened happened way before he was ever even born. These are his descendants, his family. Uh, maybe he's heard about his great-great-great-grandma and grandpa that got left behind. I don't know the, the story. But he just says, what about our people, right? He knows that he's from the nation of Israel. What about our people who got left behind? What happened to them? And the report he gets is terrible. 
They said to me, Nehemiah says, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble. They're in disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. It's bad. It's really bad. So what do we do? Well, first we care, and then we pray. Now, Nehemiah, he prays, he fasts, he earnestly seeks God about this, and it says that he even wept. Talk about caring. He even wept about the problem. Verse 4 says, when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned. I fasted. I prayed before the God of heaven. In fact, listen to his prayer. He writes it out for us. Lord, God of heaven, great and awesome God, God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commands. Oh God, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I am praying before you day and night and praying for your servants, the people of Israel. Now what's amazing next is that this is wild. Nehemiah, who had never lived in the nation of Israel, begins to confess, or in the land of Israel, he lived, he's part of the nation, but he hadn't lived in Israel, in Judah, in Jerusalem. He begins to pray and to confess and to repent for the sins of his people. Now this is interesting, that you can pray a prayer of repentance for your people, for your nation. That's what he prays. And maybe we have some repenting and praying to do for ours. You'd be the judge of that. He says, hear this that I'm praying. I confess the sins that we Israelites, including myself, including my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you, God. We have not obeyed the commands, the decrees, and the laws that you gave your servant Moses. But remember, God, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses? You said, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. Nehemiah doesn't said that, but he's basically implying, yeah, that's where we are. Our walls are broken down. We're scattered. What you said would happen, happened. Your word is true. But, God, you also said, if you return to me, if you obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there. I will bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. So Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant, and the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. And oh, and one more thing. God's laid something on Nehemiah's heart. Nehemiah is going to take action. He's going to do something to help people besides himself. In fact, Nehemiah is about to put himself at risk to help others. By the way, Lord, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And this man means the king, the king that he is serving in Babylon. 
His last sentence says, For I was the cupbearer to the king. What do you do when your walls and your life seem to have been knocked all to pieces? It doesn't just happen to countries. It happens to people. It happens in lives. Someone tells you you're going to have to find a new job or they don't want to be married any longer. Or maybe it's what happened to my friend Dennis, a veteran of the Vietnam War. In 2016, Dennis was at uh, the doctor's office when he was told, you have Agent Orange-related cancer from your time serving in Vietnam. Stage four. No cure. How do you pick up those pieces? Come on up here, Dennis. Let's talk about that. Thanks for coming up. Well, Dennis, I was there when you uh, came to see me sitting on the picnic table right out there. Remember this? I did, uh, because right after the doctor gave me the diagnosis, Rhonda called you and said, we need to see you. We came up on a Thursday, and, and you told me that surely they're not getting a divorce <laughs> after over 50 years. And we told you and asked you to pray over me, and you did. Then... You took it a step further and said, let's get the elders together Sunday night and have them stand around you, put their hand in oil, and pray over you. Then I said, well, Marty, I was only sprinkled as a baby. Maybe I need to hedge my bet and be baptized. (laughs) (laughs) He did say that. (laughs) And I did. And you were. And I was. Yeah. So... um... Well, having said that, right, so the day we talked, I mean, I know you, there had to be a lot of concerns and fears because it was all, everything in front of you was totally unknown. Like everything you'd ever known just got turned upside down, right? Because that diagnosis was so scary uh, for all of us, right? And, um, and yet, and yet, you would, and you've shared with me kind of this, but after, um, the praying over your anointing with oil, uh, as it says in the book of James, if anyone's sick, call on the elders, let them pray, anoint with oil. And after um, you were baptized, you've also described to me kind of um, how you began to see your circumstance very differently after that moment. So it moved from fear to, to something very different. Talk about that for a minute. What happened when you were baptized? The, when I was baptized uh, and submerged... Then, for some reason, you held me down longer That's than not normal. True. That's not true. <laughs> but luckily, the elders out there watching, That's you had to true. bring me up. That's not true. But when well, I... your wife did... No, never mind. We won't go there. She did suggest I keep you under a little longer. I'll tell... I'm going to out her now. Okay. But that's okay. That's nice. Yeah, yeah. But 50 years, you said, right? 50 years? Yeah. Fear had completely grabbed me, and... Talking about somebody's walls being shattered and crumbled, mine was. I had went through 43 radiation treatments, uh, chemo tablets, 10 chemo treatments, and then immune therapy. 
that didn't work. They closed the door on it. God opened up a new door for me with this new nuclear radiation that I'm taking that is helping. So when I came up out of the water, all of my fears were gone. I had no thoughts, no concerns, no worries whatsoever. I was completely free. Amen. That's pretty awesome. And you could tell the difference because your whole outlook changed, I think, after that. It did. I still don't have any concerns, no fears. I take it one day at a time. Every day I wake up, I thank the Lord for waking up. Yeah. Well, you're walking, I mean, this is now, or seven years past that moment, almost seven anniversaries. And um, you've also done something else with that, right? So you wear your Vietnam hat a lot of places, and that opens some doors for you. And I know there's something that you do because of that as a testimony. Talk a little bit about that. Well, when I'm out in public, it doesn't matter if I'm in Florida, here, wherever, usually the men will come up and start a conversation. And I said, do you have time for me to tell you a 30-second story? Nobody refuses that. So I tell them about the baptism, how my fear was lifted, and everything gave me peace of mind. Now, don't know. Hopefully, I've reached people. Hopefully, if I have just brought one person to the Lord, Amen. I feel like I've accomplished something. Well, you've planted many, many seeds. I know that for the Lord. And he's the one who makes those seeds grow. So I know you're doing the right thing. Well, what else would you want to say to us before you get off the stage here today? Anything else you'd want us to know? I would just like to thank each and every one of you for listening to my 30-second story. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Denny. So it's real, real life. It can happen to anybody, right? We can find ourselves with our walls knocked in. So the things that Nehemiah says about what you do when that happens are important. They're important. And maybe write some of these down on your, your thing as we go. Maybe you do something else. But already you've heard some of the things he did, right? He prayed. Prayer. He cared. Care, right? He acted. And he told us the last thing was, okay, I have, I have a place. And Nehemiah says, my place right now, the thing that I have is I work for the king. I'm a cupbearer. Now, according to the story, he's been working for the king, but he hasn't been in the king's presence, but he's about to get his shot in front of the king. That's about to happen. So maybe he's been working behind the scenes. My guess is that whoever the, the cupbearer has been, like he has the guy beneath him taste it before he tastes it in front of the king, right? To make sure that he doesn't be the one that doesn't own the dice. That's my guess. That's what Nehemiah has been doing. Whatever the case is, he says, I have an opportunity. This is where God placed me, and I'm going to use that for God's glory. Kind of like Dennis. Right? God says, okay, I've got cancer. I have, I'm a vet, but guys like to talk to me. I'm going to use, that's where I am. I'm going to use what I have. This is kind of like when Moses went before God, right? And he's talking before God about things, and Moses is like, well, what do I have? And God's like, well, what's in your hand? You have a staff. Let's start there. Let's use what you have. And if we're thinking about how we move forward, that's the beginning. Let's, what do we have? What's in front of us? Keep that idea in, your, in, in the forefront of your mind. What's in front of you? That's really important to how we move forward, right? We see where we're going. We see what God's placed in front of us. 
So here's how it goes for Nehemiah. He says, When I was serving King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins? Its gates have been destroyed by fire. And the king said to me, what is it that you want? Once again, Nehemiah wisely prays. You want to solve your problem? Keep praying. Don't stop praying. Pray. As we'll read in Nehemiah, he prays day and night over and over, and he tells the people to pray. Pray, pray, and pray. Amen. And after he prayed, he says in verse 5 of chapter 2, I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, then let him send me to the city in Judah. Now, it's great to get partners to help us. Nehemiah is going to do that, but but don't think it's someone else's job to solve the problem. Do what you can do. Too often we blame our problems on someone else and say, well, if they change, we can fix the problem. No! You do the thing that you can do. You can't control what someone else does, but you sure can control what you do. You do your part. You take the next step. So Nehemiah says, who is he? He's a slave. He's never even been to this city. He's concerned, and he says, send me, I'll fix the walls. Send me. Wow. Is he a master builder? No. <laughs> He's been trained to give the king a cup, drink it before the king does, and if he happens to die, he dies. That's his job. That's what he was trained for. I guess they train them, right? If you start to die and feel ill, make sure you get out of the king's presence so he doesn't see how bad you feel. I don't know. Right? Maybe that's why the king asked him, what's wrong with your face? You just drank the drink. Are you sick? What, what's that? It's a poison. Anyway, I digress. Here's what he says. Send me. And it pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. Did God answer his first prayer? Let me have favor in the eyes of this man? Yeah. God gave him the first one, and boy, did he give it. Listen to this. Now, here's where boldness fills him. He doesn't ask for a little. He asks for a lot. Listen to what happened. I love this part of Nehemiah. Like, it's like, wow, God answered my first prayer. Let's see what happens now. And so he, he actually thinks big. Like, he has a big vision for how things can change, and, and we need people with big visions. Part of what kills our world today is small-minded thinking. We don't give God enough credit for what God can do. We don't think that God can do enough. God can do big things. And sometimes we think he can't even fix something that's little. But that's another story. Nehemiah thinks big. And he begins to think, and he's laid out something God's put on his heart. He says, so if it pleases the king, give me letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive. And may I have a letter to Asaph, who keeps the royal park, that is where all the trees grow, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall. Oh yeah, and even for the house. Would you build me a house? 
the house that I'll occupy. Give me some wood for me to have a place to live. And because the gracious hand of God was on me, the king granted my request. But he hadn't thought big enough. Because listen to what the king, the king who thinks things through in a big way, that's his job. He's like, you're going to need more than that. So it says the king also does this. It says, he says that he also sent army officers and a cavalry with me. Like, I love that, because I grew up watching the old westerns. When the cavalry comes, things are going to get better. Like, that's the hope, right? As soon as you read those words, like, oh, right, the cavalry is coming. Like, there's something good coming into the story. Well, if something good's coming, if you ever watch one of those old westerns, you know there's always a bad guy. And in our story, there are some bad guys. Who are the bad guys in our story? Guess what? They're the kings that live and the governors who live all around Jerusalem. And they have really enjoyed using that as the heap that they would pick anything they wanted out of. If you need to go need a little coin for something you're doing, go on a trip, go shake down the Israelites. They don't have an army. Or they don't have anybody protecting them. There's no one to help them. If you take four or five thugs with you, you can steal whatever they have. And they have done that. Because the centuries have gone on and there are families that are living there. They have picked over their children and made slaves of people for generations. And that's who's around them, and that's who doesn't want to see the city rebuilt or the nation restored. And so we hear this guy, Sanballat, who's one of them, and Tobiah, another person who's around there. And it says in, the, in verse 10, when they heard this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Just think about that. Someone has come to promote the welfare of someone who's downcast, and these are the guys who don't want that. Like, I don't need to help those poor people. I don't even help those people who are in distress. How dare you help them? We're not going to get into their whole story, but they are constantly harassing Nehemiah on the project. Well, if you were to read on in the story, you would find out that Nehemiah goes there, and an important part happens down in about verse 18. To all those people who are left, right, who've been picked over, who've been molested by their neighbors, the people who are left, there are a lot of children, there are a lot of older people, and there are some families who have been strong enough to repel people when they've come against them. And he looks at this ragtag, rabbly bunch of people that God's given, that's who's left. Like, this is like the team, the misfits, right? Because anybody that's anybody's kind of already been taken out of there. So he looks at the misfits and he says, you know what? Let's rebuild the walls. And they like look around, like these are some, some of these stones were huge. Why'd you say? Let's rebuild the walls. We can do it. Now, they might have been inclined to say no, except he says something else. Remember, he came with the cavalry, he came with a caravan of lumber and supplies. And they have thought all along that that was just a trip that they were taking somewhere else. That's what they've thought about this. He's just passing through. But now he says, guess what? <laughs> Guess what? The God of heaven is going to give us success. And so it says in that, in that verse, right, in verse 18, so they began this good work. When he showed them what God was doing, told them what God had done, they said, okay. Now you might ask the question, well, what did they do? And I can't go into all the things that happened in chapter 3. It's way too long, but just hear this. These are some things that are descriptive of how they took care of the task. 
The walls were expansive and massive. But over and over and over in chapter 3, we hear verses like this one from chapter, verse 8. Uzziel, who was the son of Hananiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired a section. Another person, Hanani, who was a perfume maker, repaired another section. Even though it wasn't what their skill set was, they all went to work. That's the first thing. And the second thing they did, it tells us in verse 10 that Jedidiah made repairs opposite of his house. And this is what many of them did. They just looked right out their front door. They saw the wall was knocked down in front of their house, and they went to work fixing it. It wasn't what they were trained for, but it's what they did. It wasn't beneath them. It wasn't above them. It was their task. And they put their shoulder to it. And they began to pick up the rubble, to haul the, 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 the mortar, make the mortar, make the mud, and began to put the, the wall in front of their houses back together, piece by piece. I told you it was a ragtag group, and another verse, verse 12, tells us that Shalom, who was actually a ruler of part of that area, repaired the next section that was by his house with the help of his daughters. Now, they say that for a reason, to say, look, everybody was working, right? Only one group didn't do the work, and they were really wealthy people, and they hired someone else to do it. But the good news is that they at least hired people to fix two or three sections instead of just one. It's kind of funny that you can read that part of the list, but I won't get into that part. Everyone did the thing that was in front of them. Everyone worked on what was right in front of their house, and they began to build and to work. And then when those enemies started to rise up against them, they had to have half the time someone sitting there with a bow and arrow and a, and a sword, and the other half doing the work. I don't know if you think of this, but picture grandma sitting there with a bow and arrow, you know, while her granddaughters build the wall. I mean, I love that imagery. That's what's going on there, right? It wasn't just the men. It was equal opportunity. Like, everyone was working here, right? It's like World War II in America. Suddenly, everyone is equal. We can all work. Then after the war, maybe not so much anymore. That's a whole other story. But anyway, that's what happened there. Like, everybody was equal. We all can do it. We can all do this. And they did. And there was urgency. How much urgency was there? Listen to this verse, verse 22. It says, it says uh, he says, Have everyone, man, and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so that they can... Sir, serve us as guards by night and workers by day. In fact, Nehemiah said, Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me even took off our clothes. We didn't even pause. I mean, it must have been stinky, but they didn't take time to change their clothes. Like the task in front of them was urgent. He's a way of saying, we didn't let the, we didn't let the grass grow under our feet. We got to it. And man, did they ever get to it. We read this story, and in chapter 6, verse 15, the story comes to its dramatic conclusion. He says, the wall was completed in 52 days. This humble ragtag group, despite the opposition that was around them, rebuilt the wall of their city in 52 days. And friends, it would stand for another 500 years until Jesus would come riding into that city on a donkey through those very same walls. When he rebuilt it, it was rebuilt for God's purpose, and it would endure all the way to 70 A.D. after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And one of the things Jesus had warned them was, okay, now those walls are going to come down again, and they did in 70 A.D. But from Nehemiah's time until the time of Christ, they stood. Walls built by little children and girls and boys 
stood against armies that would come against them. They protected the inhabitants of that city against great assaults. And there were many that came against them. God had blessed the work of their hands. Sanballat had once joked with Tobiah that those walls were so flimsy that if a fox ran across them, they'd fall down. Friends, the armies of Assyria could not overcome those walls, even though they overcame 31 of the most fortified cities in the world of that day, they couldn't overcome this city. And even after all of this, when the Romans will try to assault it in 70 AD, it will take them years to bring this city down. It was built by children and grandparents. It was built by people who had deformities and had handicaps and disabilities, and it lasted through all of those things because God was in it. And when you build into your wall, God, incredible things are going to happen. So what do you need to build into your wall? What things would you write down? Nehemiah's wall was built around family and service, endurance, I have to imagine it was built with urgency, but it was also built with love. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen kids playing at the beach. I have the chance. I love to build sandcastles. And my nieces, I got to watch them growing up. We went to the beach with them every year. And I have one of my nieces, and she's really into the artsy things. So I would build these, these sandcastles I thought were big and masculine with turrets and, and walks and all kinds of things. And you know what she would do? She would say, let's decorate it with seashells. No, it's a fort. No, no, Uncle Marty, let's decorate it. Let's make it look pretty. I have to imagine that inside the walls, there was some three or four-year-old girl who made those walls look pretty. You know what I'm saying? Like, like in front of her house, the wall had a big smiley face on it or a flower or whatever, right? So be it. God knows our hearts. He uses that for his glory. If we let him. If we let him. Dennis, seven years building his life, saying, God, use it. There's a lot that he can't do anymore, but what he can do, he does. And that's true for all of us, whether you're eight or you're 80. God's got something for us. There's a lot that needs rebuilding in our world. But the task is no more difficult than the task that was before Nehemiah. And what God did then, God can do again. Amen? Amen. Now, it might be that you're in a place where you need some people to come around you right now and encourage you because your walls have been kicked in. This is a good place to come if it feels like your walls have been knocked down because It's a place that's been pretty good at rebuilding. The elders, the people here, they have a real good knack for that. And so if you need some people to come alongside you in prayer and and to hold you up and to encourage you or maybe to help you with counseling or to help you with resources, this is a place that they do that. The church loves to help people. You're very generous that way. And so if you're in need, you're in a good space today. Just let somebody know. Let us know what's needed. If you don't know anybody here, talk to me. If you know somebody here, talk to them. Say, pray for me. 
Help me. I've got some things that need to be rebuilt in my life. Let's put the pieces back together. Or maybe you're here and you've never made life's most important decision. Nehemiah was already a God follower and a God lover, and he wanted to do the will of God, but maybe God has been foreign to you. Maybe he's not been a part of your life. Maybe this is the time for you to say, you know, I want to be right with God. The New Testament, Peter tells us that the way to get right with God is to repent of our sins, kind of like Nehemiah did in his prayer, to confess those to God, repent of those sins, and then he says, be baptized. But then it's called submerged. <laughs> be submerged, be baptized, make the next step. What is that all about? That's about being made clean, being made whole, and really, the imagery Paul says it's about dying to one life and rising to a brand new life. Jesus told Nicodemus it's about being born again. A fresh start. Go figure, we're in a series called New Beginnings. Maybe it's time for you to have a new beginning. Whatever decision you have to make, would you make it as we stand and we sing our hymn of invitation? Amen.